And Scott, maybe uh, more light in the room, especially on the wings. Maybe a little less bright there in the middle. That looks good. take some time and, and review just the, the introduction or the overview and then spend most of the time uh, talking about the hindrances in light of this fourth foundation of mindfulness. But feel free to raise any questions or share your comments, your experiences as we go along. Before I begin, though, any comments on the sit tonight? Anything seem relevant? So like uh, any investigation, we want to know, we need to know what our orientation is because we always have one. And if we don't understand what our orientation is, uh, it kind of gets in the way. So one description of that from Ajahn Sumedho is just talking, you know, we always know, we always hear, you know, that we're looking at dukkha and the end of dukkha. It's a point the Buddha made all the time. You know, I only teach one thing about stress and the ending of stress. Because there are a lot of spiritual, religious, philosophical issues at his, you know, in his day and in our day. And the Buddha was very careful about just focusing, I teach, dukkha and the end of dukkha. And Ajahn Sumedho has another way of kind of making this point. The suffering that ends is the suffering that is created, created out of ignorance. So this fourth foundation we're interested, you know, it's a particular map, particular frame of reference, way of opening to the moment in order to see the suffering that the mind creates out of ignorance or out of its habits of misperceiving or out of its habits of being superficial, not seeing clearly. And a lot of what's in this fourth foundation, you know, we find elsewhere. It has to exist elsewhere, right? Because the first three foundations are basically the body and the mind. So the fourth foundation, there's nothing else to open to but the body and the mind. And it's easy to think, well, the first three, we've already opened to the body and the mind. The first one's on the body. The second two are on feeling and then the rest of the mind. So what is the fourth foundation? Well, in in the Buddha and in you know in the commentaries, it's very clear that you don't you can have full awakening being mindful to the body, being mindful to feeling, being mindful of the mind. So again, it kind of begs the question: Well, what's the mindfulness of dhammas about? The fourth foundation about if the first three are sufficient? And it's like. 
you know, this is this is what a good teacher does. They they say, you know, do this, and then it doesn't work, right, for the person. For some people, it works. You know, some people, you know, if, if you believe the the discourses of the Buddha, the Buddha would just give instructions, and right there in the Dharma talk, people would have full awakening. <laughs> so, but you know, sometimes the Buddha would say, you know, you know, be aware of the in breath, be aware of the out breath, and that was it. Or notice how the breath comes and goes, and that was it. But then if that instruction isn't enough, then there's another instruction, and then another instruction, and then another instruction. And that's one way to think about the four foundations. The fourth instruction, the fourth frame of reference, like pay attention to this, is sort of like helping us understand, it's like more literal instructions to liberate the mind, to help the mind see what it's in the habit of not seeing. Because what the mind isn't seeing is this. So when the Buddha gives any suggestion to just be aware of this, for some people that's going to be enough. And and other people, they need to know what this is. You know, they need a conceptual map so that they can actually open to this. But ultimately, we don't need anything to open to this unless, you know, when someone says, yeah, open, nothing happens, you know. But it's not not happening because we're opening and there's nothing there to open to. It's because we're not really opening. So the Buddha is just giving more instructions, more detailed or coming at it in a different way to inspire an opening or to reveal to us, for the mind to reveal to itself what's in the way of opening. Like, how come being aware of the breath, being aware of the body, being aware of the mind being aware of feeling wasn't enough of an instruction for us to actually be aware of the mind or be aware of feeling and to see Dhamma, to see the way that it is. So the big push, you know, what the Buddha is really making clear here, which was sort of clear in the other three foundations is, okay, now I really want you to pay attention to conditionality, to how things change. And in particular, I want you to pay attention to the dynamic process, the the conditionality of freedom and the conditionality of getting our head stuck in glue, you know, getting all gummed up, getting burdened and stressed out and tight. Some of you have already mentioned, I think, in the past weeks, and I'm sure it's come up in your practice and maybe in the guided meditation, it's like all of this instructions is in the way. It's causing problems for me. Stop it. You know, it's like I just want to be with the breath. I just want to be with the present moment. I don't. And it's true. There's like when the Buddha gets more explicit in the instructions, it's easy to react. But if we just listen and do it anyway, then we turn that reactivity we might have, like this is just too much of too many concepts or too much stuff. Then we just look, oh, that's aversion. You know? Aversion has arisen. It's present, you know. Let me watch this aversion, maybe it will go away. Let's see. Ah, you know, it's not there. Now it's back. <laughs> and you know, so we just 
engaging the map, engaging the practice, isn't supposed to be liberation. It's supposed to reveal the way things are that leads to release or to liberation. So we just have to find a way into the process that leads to liberation. And what's the process that leads to liberation? The continuity of mindful attention, so opening to the way things are with some continuity. That's what liberates the mind. It leads to both calm and to insight. And so the Buddha is giving us a particular object, which is, you know, the conditionality of the hindrances. Looking at the mind and body as a a process as opposed to a thing. Looking at sensitivity, the six sense gates, like really getting interested in sensitivity because, and he lays it out in the instructions, when you're aware of your sensitivity to sights and to sounds and to touches and to thoughts, you're going to notice that sometimes when the mind is sensitive to sound, something arises in conjunction with that sound, like not liking it or liking it. You know, that fetter arises in conjunction with hearing. And then sometimes there isn't a fetter. And when we notice sensitivity and we notice how sometimes the mind gets reactive to what it's sensitive to and sometimes it doesn't, the mind just gets grounded in that reality. That having a, um, a fetter, you know, what's translated as a fetter, having a a problem with what we're sensitive to is extra. It's like it comes and it goes. And we really get directly in our experience that, boy, it's nice when it's not there. It's liberating when I can be sensitive in this six, these six ways and equanimous and impartial, dispassionate with the sensitivity, not trying to extract something for somebody out of my experience that I'm sensitive to. So last week I ended by just reviewing sort of the map of the fourth foundation in terms of a linear process where we're noticing the conditionality, the movement of the hindrances, noticing how hindrances arise and cease in the mind and, uh, and noticing how the mind is when the, the hindrances aren't arising, just getting really wise about the movement of hindrances naturally leads to the mind having fewer and fewer hindrances. It can't help it. The mind cannot help it. As it understands the lawful movement of hindrances, it naturally, without anybody doing anything, it naturally stops doing that which causes hindrances to arise. And it naturally starts being in the moment in ways that prevent hindrances from arising and cause the hindrances that are there to be dropped. It just happens if the mind understands the lawful movement of the hindrances. So to the degree that I tend to be controlling and irritable and others in the room tend to be full of craving, a lot of craving, and other people here have a strong tendency to be dull, lethargic, and other people tend to be restless and have a lot of worry, and 
others in the room tend to be have a lot of skeptical doubt to the degree that we have those tendencies strongly established in the mind simply means we haven't paid enough attention to how they come and go we in a way the mind takes it as a given I'm just an irritable controlling kind of person and I have to learn how to live with that and by the way you guys have to learn how to live with that too <laughs> you know that's kind of how we feel that, you know that's just how it is that's my personality we don't realize that that there's options that the being hindered being sort of overtaken by these habits is a process it's this process is always happening there's nothing fixed about it it's completely alive so if there is a so-called personality that has a tendency toward irritation and control, being controlling then that process is it's ongoing it can be affected and the one thing the most powerful way of affecting this dynamic process is to feed it information and a particular kind of information which is it needs to see upon what causes does irritation arise and upon what causes does irritation cease in the mind and upon what causes does irritation not arise when it's not there and that just gets integrated this is how you know this is dependent co-arising or uh, codependent orig- origination as it's some, sometimes translated because the buddha has to explain you know for those of us who are dense and need conceptual maps you know being mindful isn't enough of an instruction for us then he has to create a conceptual map that explains how it is we can create the experience of suffering without anybody being there to create it it has to be a natural process that arises and can cease and the whole process of liberation also has to be explained like how can a human being uh become liberated become free of greed and aversion if there's nobody there nobody who's going to do it it also has to be an impersonal independent process so this is what this map this fourth foundation is explaining it's just another way the buddha is explaining dependent co-arising like how it is liberation can arise without somebody doing it so there is a system in play right the system let's let's break it down into uh, uh, these each of the ones separately so the hindrances is in a sense its own little micro system process happening it has its own causes and conditions when they're not there this doesn't happen when they're there <coughs> irritation or whatever your favorite hindrances happens and and the process of purification is just the mind seeing that as a process as a conditional lawful process seeing that changes the process not seeing that means the process continues so the only thing that interrupts the process is the process itself gets educated it starts to see what's going on <coughs> and that's what we're doing we're 
we're being inspired to see what goes on. We've bumped into these teachings, you know, through every, each of us in kind of strange ways, you know, basic, the, the basic teaching to pay attention, and it changes everything. It changes everything that's dependent on not seeing clearly, you know. And the Buddha says, everything, this is, this is sort of a premise in the Buddhist teachings, everything, everything meaning all of this, samsara, is dependent on not seeing clearly. The whole world itself arises out of ignorance. And when that ignorance ceases, the world ceases. This is sort of very interesting philosophical point. I'm not sure how useful. It's very interesting, but I'm not sure how useful it is to think about. Well, what it means is, it means that it ceases to exist for me or for you. But I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get into the philosophical question: is is there this world or not? Because it's not relevant. And this is the Buddhist point. You know, what's relevant is when it exists for me as an independent entity, there are problems. And that's what ceases to exist. It doesn't exist for me or it doesn't exist for somebody with this understanding, presumably. So the hindrances we take up, we get interested in that micro process and getting interested in it itself is what transforms it. And that heals the mind. The mind is getting slowly healed from the agitation that arises when the mind is being affected by the hindrances, like in my case, being irritable or controlling. And then that happens less and less. And when it does happen, it's less, uh, it less deeply entrenched in the mind. And so the mind is getting healed. It's becoming calm because there's less of that hindering force in the mind, less often, less intense, more calm, more of that healing, healing towards stability. And that allows us, you know, because we're being instructed in this very intricate map given by the Buddha, that allows us to get interested in another one of these sub-processes. We're noticing how we're sort of breaking down the sense of self. We're replacing the sense, the sort of superficial sense of self. Yeah, there's me here with a more experiential sense of self. Hey, I can feel this body. Hey, I have a sense of this activity that I'm going to call the mind. And that's what I'm knowing here. You know, I'm knowing I have some direct experience of what I'm going to call the body and I have some direct experience of what I'm calling the mind. I'm perceiving things. I recognize Jeff. That's perception. I have a feeling tone associated. I like Jeff. feels nice to see Jeff here. You know, so all of that I have to, I'll call that mind, you know, or more specifically, I'll call that perception and I'll call that feeling. And then any memories I have about my time with Jeff, I'll call that everything else, which we call formations, you know. And the fact that I can just recognize that, that this experience is being known itself, that's got to be something. So I'll call that consciousness. 
And so that's the mind. And so we're starting to notice, okay, there's a body and a mind. And then the Buddha says, notice how it comes and goes. That any experience we have of the mind and body, what we call mind and body, it doesn't last long before there's another experience of the mind and body. So this is the aggregate teaching. The Buddha is saying, okay, you've calmed yourself down. You've fed the, the subsystem of the hindrances with clear seeing. And there's just less afflictive because the mind really understands better how they come, how they go. It's just not picking up that red hot iron. You know, it's just not doing it as much. And so now we're looking at the body and mind and we're learning to see it as a present moment happening instead of the concept of me. There's this, I know I can directly experience body, I can directly experience mind. And I notice, boy, they're in flux. The mind and body is always in flux. I mean, I can definitely know there is a mind and body, right? Anybody here not recognize there's a mind and body? But do you notice how difficult it is to pin it down? Because it's in flux. I mean, we can kind of pin down like my, uh, you know, I usually have strong sensations in my knee and thigh. And I can kind of, but you know, it's only when I'm superficial I can pin it down. When I really look, every one, you know, all those seemingly solid sensations, they're all kind of dancing there. They're all moving. And it's almost like if I get really mindful, it's like there's really not much there anyway. Just the, the dance of sensation itself. So that's what I mean by seeing that the body and mind are in flux. That's the second section of these teachings in the fourth foundation. And then that kind of loosens things up. We, you know, kind of... Uh, seeing how fluid the mind and body is, because this is what we're taking to be self now, this very influx thing of mind and body. We've replaced the concept of Mark, who's 52 years old, who's got this life, and we're in this more direct relationship with the mind and body and seeing it's in flux. And then the Buddha then shifts to the third, which, which says, okay, now Mark, notice that this dynamic body and mind is sensitive. Really pay attention to its sort of exposure. It's sensitive, unavoidably sensitive in these six ways. It sees, it hears, it smells, it tastes, it has touches, and it has thoughts. And this sensitivity is constantly happening. The body's moving, and it's constantly being impinged upon in these six ways. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking. So it's, it's like, it's um, sort of um, a deeper kind of uh, experience of self. So now we're kind of, the Buddha's unpacking or, or sort of really deepening our experience of a more direct self, a more honest self. You know, normally, superficially, we have a very static sense of self, right? Oh yeah, it's me. And it only holds up because we don't look at it. As soon as we look at it, we realize, well, that's just a thought, you know, or it's just, you know, since pressure in my head that I've been taking as myself, you know, like I'm back here somewhere behind my eyeballs. Or these funny, funny things that when you say it out loud, it's ridiculous. But most of the time, literally, we're taking that to be self and not this very dynamic experience of body, mind, being sensitive in this ongoing, uncontrolled way. 
I'm not in control of the touches, I'm not in control of the smells, the sights, the sounds, and I'm not even in control of the thoughts that are streaming through and being known. So, now, with that, you know, there's, this is a big place of practice. So what does the Buddha in the Fourth Foundation suggest to us? He says, okay, there you are as a sensitive being, mind and body in flux, exposed in, the six, in these six ways. And he says, notice how being exposed in these six ways, a lot of reactivity comes. So it's a more refined look at the hindrances, really. Like when the mind sees something or hears something, Notice how, if we're not careful, we get reactive, we get tight in that sensitivity. The mind does something in reaction to being sensitive. Sensitive to a memory, so the mind does something when it's sensitive to a thought or memory, it does something when it's sensitive to any of the five physical senses. And notice that there are times it's sensitive and it doesn't do anything. And and then noticing that, Again, because it's an impersonal system, the information itself is enough for that ongoing process of mind and body being sensitive to the world. It gets purified. It starts to get to be less confused by what it's sensitive to, less reactive to what it's sensitive to, more... Uh, allowing, more spacious, more forgiving, less reactive, more equanimous. So basically we're on this wild bronco and we learn how to ride it. We learn how to be this mind-body in flux, totally exposed in these six ways without reacting, without adding anything to it. Just let this mind and body in flux be sensitive in the six ways. Because that already is our, you know, what we call the personality. It, it already is our engagement in the world. It's not like we need more engagement in the world. That what we're being sensitive to and the dance of the mind and body, it's already our participation in the world. So we're basically allowing our participation to be clean and pure of confusion and reactivity. It doesn't mean we don't make mistakes, but at any point when the mistake is seen as a mistake, it's not a problem. It's just like that's all that needs to happen is to know there was a mistake. I said something I shouldn't have said. I reached and grabbed something that I don't actually want. That wasn't what I was trying to do. Because that will, you know, that the information itself leads to the next thing. So that's a, that itself is a powerful balance. Already now, the mind is relatively uh, pure of defilements, of problems. It's already, you know, for most of us, this would be a kind of profound mystical experience, just being alive, being in this very dynamic awareness of the body and mind and being sensitive, but not adding anything extra to it. And so then what the Buddha suggests, now the next stage, is to pay attention to this another dynamic system, 
which is pay attention to the balance of the mind itself. So now the mind not being hindered by the hindrances, not being confused by the concept of self, right? Because we have the dynamic experience of the mind and body, the aggregates, instead of our concept of me. Not confused by sensitivity, right? So now what's left for... Uh, you know, for a mere practitioner to do. Well, now the practitioner gets interested in balance, in this beautiful balance, because there's this, there's still one sort of little force, sort of self force in the mind, which is, can this balance be even more beautiful? And that's what the seven factors of awakening are. It's all about noticing the balance in the mind. And the only agitated, agitating thought is, could this balance be even better? And it puts mindfulness to work. Well, would more tranquility or more interest, more joy? Do I need a little bit more one-pointedness, more equanimity? So it's the balancing of the seven factors of awakening. These qualities are already in our mind. There's already the quality of interest or investigation and energy and rapture. There's already the quality of tranquility and one-pointedness and uh, equanimity because these are like uh, these are natural qualities they just in a sense exist and so at this point because they're not being obscured by the hindrances by the false concept of a conceptual self by our reaction to sensitivity none of that is obscuring these wholesome qualities so they're just there and the only thing is to wonder, how could this balance be made more beautiful, more imbalanced, more, uh, the factors stronger, more resonant? And again, it, just ha- it doesn't happen because we want more concentration or we want more joy in the mind. We just start noticing the joy and noticing the tranquility and noticing the different factors of awakening and they come into balance. Because if they were out of balance, we'd know that too. And if you, can, if you really understand the mind is out of balance, you understand why it's out of balance and what has to be done. So the information itself is the cause for the correction. Again, nobody has to do this. Mindfulness is enough. Awareness is enough. So we refine the balance. The balance gets more beautiful. So now in a sense, you know, in this sort of classic sense of development, right? This is a linear development. It doesn't always necessarily happen this way, but it's useful to us for us to kind of take this map and look at it in a linear way. Then there's this very refined balance of mind. In a way, this mind doesn't really have any problems, except one problem is left, which is this mind this mind, the the sense of self that's still here in the mind wonders, well, how does, you know, how did I ever suffer so much? How did I ever have so many problems in life? What was that all about? So it's still missing the the basic, like how, how does, let's call it pure mind, fall into suffering? Because not knowing that, makes it susceptible to doing what it must have done originally because 
we still know that that experience of being a suffering human being. And unless we understand how that happens, there's a little suffering left, which is this beautiful state of refinement might disappear and I'll end up like I was before. So I, it still has one job left to do, which is to understand how did I end up as a suffering human being? And that's the reflection on the Four Noble Truths. The mind at that point in that very refined state has to understand there is dukkha. And what is dukkha in that moment? Just what I said. Dukkha is the understanding that I could fall back into dukkha. That itself is the, that's the experience of dukkha in that state. It's just knowing that the mind is susceptible to confusion, to ignorance. So that itself is tension in the mind. It's stress in the mind, however subtle it is. And the mind looks at the dukkha and it wonders, well, what's the cause of this stress? You know, given I'm in this refined state, I do remember that I do recognize that I'm susceptible to dukkha still. And I notice that as a little thorn in the mind. And then the mind, because it's still in a pretty refined state, wonders, well, upon what cause do I experience this dukkha here? This worry of falling back into dukkha. And you see, oh, there is this activity in the mind called attachment. I'm attached, I'm identified with that vulnerability of falling back into dukkha. There's still a self identified with the cause, with the uh, potential of being, you know. So we have to, we basically see the Four Noble Truths over and over again. Anytime in that refined state there is any kind of problem whatsoever, the mind gets interested. Oh, there's a problem. There's a slight flaw. There's a slight weight in the mind. What's the cause? Oh, the mind is once again identifying. It's attached. It's clinging to something. Clinging to the one who doesn't want to fall into hell again. That itself, you see, that's the seed of going to hell. Being as somebody who doesn't want to go to hell is the cause. Because the, the, there's still something kind of seen apart from everything. Something that still needs to be protected. So you keep doing that, seeing the, seeing the stress, however subtle, seeing its cause is always identification. Seeing the cause, that bit of information is the cause for the cause of suffering to go away. The cessation of dukkha, that little stress, happens when the mind sees that it's identifying and sees it's unnecessary. That's the letting go. Nobody has to let go of it. And then the mind understands, oh yeah, I just got to, that's all I have to do. I just got to keep letting go of this one thing. And that eventually becomes the mind. The mind is, in a sense, becomes this free fall of letting go of clinging, letting go of clinging, letting go of clinging. In a way, that is the, that's the process of the mind. That's the only part of the mind that's left. That letting go of clinging, letting go of clinging, letting go of clinging. Now, for those of us you know, who are just practitioners, students of the path, you know, we know a moment of letting go of clinging. And sometimes maybe we know a few moments of letting go of clinging in a row. But that's pretty much all we know, I think. I mean, that's all I know. 
but that's uh, that's enough to inspire us to kind of engage this, you know, all of these at whatever level is sort of asking for attention, whether it's a more refined reflection on the Four Noble Truths or whether it's basic healing of, of seeing the agitating forces in the mind and in seeing the agitating forces, the hindrances, things calm down. So any questions before we take a look at some of the hindrances more specifically? Any questions about this these four, this fourth foundation of mindfulness and, and how it works as a map. You know, that's a, that's a complicated map. It's a sophisticated map of the mind. And if you don't need it, don't use it. If being mindful is sufficient, then just be mindful of your present moment experience with continuity and experience the freedom, the letting go that happens in that simple mindfulness. But if it isn't working, then start breaking it down. Yeah, Jonathan. How do you know what's sufficient? Well, the results. You know, like the practice should lead to results. And when the practice isn't leading to results, when your mind feels burdened and you apply yourself to that experience, there's some confidence that it doesn't have to be this way. The weight, the heaviness in the mind the suffering in the mind doesn't have to be this way. So we apply ourselves to it. We, in some fashion, bring awareness to the experience because that's what we've come to understand is useful. And we do it, and we do it, and we do it, but the experience of dukkha isn't being affected. Then there's only one problem, which is we're not doing it right because this is a natural process it's unstoppable. It's like lawful in that way. So if it's not working, it's because it's not being done correctly. It's the only thing that can prevent it from happening. Now, we, blaming ourselves for not doing it right is the problem. <laughs> the only thing that works is to do the practice correctly. Hating ourselves for not doing it correctly, thinking we're never going to be able to do it correctly, feeling like somehow we don't have the conditions, the personality, the supporting conditions to do it correctly, none of that is a cause for doing it correctly. The only thing that is a cause for doing it correctly is to begin again, and when that doesn't work, to begin again, and then to just keep interrupting the beginning again with seeking out the information again from somebody or some source that we think knows more than we know, you know, and then applying that information directly in our experience, that process of being aware of the lived experience and doing it and doing it and then checking with our sources and then applying it and applying it until we're independent, we're less reliant on the sources and there's enough internal experience that actually we're, we're orienting around what we have seen directly in our experience. And then when we go back to our sources, it's just like confirming, oh yeah, I already understand this. I know what I'm doing. It, and it's a nice thrill to know that other people see it the same way we see it. But that's different. Instead of like, what does he say? It's more like, this is what I know. Are they, am I in sync with, yeah. And then it's like a kind of a rush of energy. Oh yeah. This is what other people have come to know. 
And it's more like, it's so gratifying to see that other people explain their internal process just as I see it. And it's, it kind of gives a burst of confidence. I must be seeing it correctly if all these other people see it in this way. Other comments about this? Yeah, Louise. But who said to try to get rid of it? I never said that. But see, I already warned you, the map itself is has side effects. That if just being aware, waking up, if I just said wake up, if that's not enough, then you know, then the Buddha says, Well, here's some more information. But be careful, don't get confused by the information. Because the idea is to look at the hindrance. Notice when it's there. Notice when it's not there. Right? Notice when it's there and then it leaves. Notice when it's not there and doesn't come back. That's all the Buddha said. So don't blame the Buddha. (laughs) And don't blame me. (laughs) Because you'll make me irritated. No, but it's great to see that. I mean, that, that's exactly what we need to see. And, and we always overcompensate. We get the information and then it's like, you know, we, we get a cookbook and then you, we throw the cookbook in the pot. I mean, we do stupid things like that. Or we, we get a manual on how to build a house and we use the manual to sort of pound the nail. But it's, it's not really how the information is supposed to be used. It's so hard for us to do what we're told. I mean, that really, it is. It's really hard for us. I know this from direct experience. Mostly what happens is, just because of our condition, we get the information, and then usually in five to 200 ways, we resist the information. You know, we all these different patterns of rebelling against authority or being gaga about authority. You know, all these different ways we kind of mess with the information. And then when we do finally get down to using the information, it's not wholehearted. It's not like, well, let me just really check it out and see if it's of value. It's sort of like, oh, I knew it wasn't going to work. You know, we kind of just look at it, no, I knew it wasn't going to work, and give up. So it's like we've got to take the information and recognize it's just information. Now, let me, let me do my best to sort of apply it or transfer it to the experience. What's being said? What's because our, we're you know we interpret the information through our filter. Hindrances are bad. That's the filter. You know, if it hurts, it must be bad. And any teaching about what hurts 
has to be about getting rid of it. And in a sense, it is about getting rid of it, but not by getting rid of it. (laughs) We get rid of it by understanding what it is. Because as long as we're in the self-centered trip of being the person who has to get rid of the hindrances, that's what's generating the hindrances. Is that self-centered trip of being the person who has to get rid of the hindrances. Yes, first. Mm-hmm. And I mean, around the emotions and everything, I have been noticing that like, I, I just notice stuff, it's just, just melting away. And sometimes it isn't, but mostly it is. But what I'm, what I'm wondering is about the thinking process. It's probably because of that way we enjoy class or whatever. Because I'm also trying to just kind of have my mind go in a more positive direction, particularly yeah. when it's just and I know that I have lots of thoughts, you know, and they just come out of nowhere. I mean, but, but I'm wondering where, um, yeah, we're just kind of turning the mind in a more skillful and more positive direction. Where mm-hmm. that fits or is that, you know, about trying to control or, anyway. It's a, no, it's an excellent question. It's actually, we won't go there tonight now, but uh, we need to go there. So we'll do it next week. And the small groups next week can be on this exact topic. Uh, so we'll take another week with the hindrances. And one of the things we'll look at, just as Spruce suggests, is that, I mean, there's two ways to do what you suggested, Spruce. One is out of a neurotic, self-centered, controlling way. You know, I'm going to, I don't like my irritation, so I'm going to cultivate being sweet and seeing the good in everything and like that. Or through that careful seeing, you know, just observing the hindrances, observing how they come, observing when they're not there, observing the causes for it to arise, the causes for it to be abandoned, the causes that keep it from arising. Just in observing all of that, it's like a, uh, a realization comes up, which is, oh, there's this per- perceptual distortion going on. I see negative things. My mind gravitates towards seeing what's wrong, you know? And so, well, what could I... Then the question arises naturally. Well, what could I do to correct that perceptual uh, distortion or that bad habit, that bad perceptual habit of seeing immediately what's wrong? Or I could cultivate seeing what's good, what's right, you know? And so what you're pointing to is as we notice the, the... the tendency of our mind to get hindered, to get corrupted and weighed down by different um, habits of mind, it will dawn on the mind how it's just a habit. The mind, the, the perceptual mechanism is distorted. It just needs to be corrected. So we need medicine. Now, if this medicine is just that, it's, it's just correcting what's an imbalance. So if we take things to be permanent, then we need to cultivate the perception of impermanence. If we think bodies are beautiful, we need to cultivate the perceptions that bodies are just bodies. You peel away the skin, there's blood, there's muscle, there's this, there's that. So it's a perceptual distortion when you see an attractive person walking in the room and all you see is the surface because that's not the truth. 
That's part of the truth, but it's not the whole truth. So there's many, many ways we need to correct these perceptual distortions. And it's a big part of that healing that comes from understanding how hindrances are moving in the mind. Mostly what we're seeing is these very entrenched perceptual distortions going on. And we can correct them, but we have to see how the mind isn't seen straight. It's seen, you know, crookedly. And uh, so joy is one of those obvious things. If we're feeling weighed down over and over again, weighed down by life, well, it squeezes all the energy out of the mind and body. And so we need to train the mind to see what's enlivening, what brings energy into the body and mind. Because it's not that what we're seeing is wrong. It's just out of balance. And then, and then it, it skews everything. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Bruce. Yeah, Jana. Do you actually end up changing the tendency of your mind, or is it just that, that like, for you, for example, irritation will still arise, but it's just not stick, doesn't stick anymore? Or do you actually transform your mind through the practice? Well, because it's a dynamic process, it's always changing. So I'm either that the habits, the tendency of the mind are either more in the direction of irritation or more in the direction of, of non-irritation, you know. So every time, like maybe it was Bruce or somebody mentioned already tonight, you know, every time the mind does something, then it reinforces that pattern. So if we're acting out lust or irritation or greediness or dullness or restlessness, like if we're meeting restlessness and identifying with it and going with it, then it becomes a deeper habit of the mind to go that way. If we practice using medicine, so we understand what's going on and we use skillful medicine to balance the mind, to change sort of its way of perceiving and way of relating, then we're weakened because it's not getting reinforced. See, the perceptual habit, the perceptual distortion exists only because it gets repeated. It itself isn't anything. <coughs> it's like habits of mind. Think of them as sort of like, um, you know, any kind of natural system. It's almost like there's elasticity. So we create the habit of being irritated. But in order to create the habit of irritation, in a way, in a parallel universe somewhere, there's this habit of sweetness. And part of what we're doing is we're bringing those back together. You know, you can't really do one thing without having something equal and opposite. So then we concoct something called metta, you know, loving kindness practice. It's like the opposite of that. But they're not really opposites. It's just it, metta exists as a thing because irritation exists as a thing. And when things come into balance, then neither of those make any sense anymore you know, irritation or love. It's just being natural. We don't have to call it being kind, you know, or not being irritated anymore. It's just Dhamma, the way it is now. Time for one more. Yeah, David. Yeah, when you're talking about you have a hindrance, and then you said the causes of, watch the, of the arising, the cause of the arising, mm-hmm. and the cause of it falling away. <clears throat> As we look at the cause, as we as, a, as it arising, are we just trying to identify the uh, complex feelings, even though they're mixed up, 
for, and then they, and as you follow that, as you're watching that momentum, and then as it starts to level off, and then the cause of it falling. In other words, what is it? What, what are we looking at in the cause? What mm-hmm. is the cause, the mechanism that allows us to see what the cause is going up, cause of it going down. Yeah, I th- it, you know, this is where it's really important to know the difference between the conceptual map and the actual experience, because the actual experience is intuitive, it's direct, there's a direct seeing, and you may or may not be able to conceptualize, to articulate what you saw. Some people can articulate it, you know, and those are the people we'd like to be teachers, because not that they're a better practitioner, but they have some skill in articulating their internal processes. Other people, they may have a lot of insight, but they can't articulate what happened. But you don't need to articulate what happened. You just need to intuitively or directly see what's happening, see how that hindrance wasn't there and then came in, see how it was there and then now it isn't there, tracking it with some continuity of mindfulness. And that direct experience of seeing it come out of seemingly nowhere, you know, like causes a, and then there it is, it takes birth, irritations in the mind. There's irritation, irritation, and then it's just not in the mind anymore. That in itself is enough. Because what it's, it, yeah, it, it just, the information is kind of directly digested or integrated <clears throat> into the process itself. We don't need to articulate, we don't need to, in a sense, articulate it to ourselves and then tell it to ourselves. Okay, did you see that, Mark? This is what just happened. We think we do because we think the self is somehow different than our experience, like the experience of something happening to the self. So we just assume we have to explain what's happening to ourselves. I mean, it's really neurotic. But, it, but we, it, it's not really that way. It just, just keep watching or observing or being with the experience of hindrances arising, hindrances ceasing, hindrances not coming into the mind. So then we have to trust our insight. Or learn to trust it because it can be, it can be. Yeah, there is there is a place for that trust because otherwise we might overdo it, and that itself is neurotic and and stressful. (coughs) Yeah, but so that's what I meant with Jonathan. It's like if you're just doing it in a more simple way and things start working better, then you have to trust that. That's what you have to trust. Otherwise, you might feel like you have to do more about it than you actually need to do. Seeing is enough. The awareness is enough. And it's a gradual process, so it is easy to feel like nothing's happening. So we really have to look. Is that true that nothing's happening? Is it true that I'm, my mind is just as tight, just as neurotic, just as self-centered? So does that mean as you're watching it and you're using your insight, if you can stay away from it, whether it's good or bad, your insight would be better? Yeah, basically, I mean, if you're not getting caught, if you are getting caught up in the idea of good and bad, it, it's that itself will be a problem, you know, that you're going to have to work with. And if you're not having that problem, that's good, unless you get identified with it. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good place to end. <laughs> so take a few seconds and let the words fade.
happy to be on this path of awakening, doing the best we can to bring an open, clear attention to the moment and to let that be enough to trust the essential goodness of this kind of mindful, open presence. And may it be a cause for peace, ease, love, all the beautiful qualities in the world and in our hearts. And thanks again, everyone, for coming. And um, Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.